Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, Washington Congressman and Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, critical of the Biden administration withdrawal from Afghanistan. The Seattle City Council appears to back off its plans to defund police. And Governor Inslee responds to critics of his new vaccination requirements. But first... I cannot promise what the final outcome will be or what it will be that it will be without risk of loss. But as Commander-in-Chief, I can assure you that I will mobilize every resource necessary. Facing a firestorm of criticism, President Biden took questions from the White House press corps about the chaotic evacuations in Afghanistan. We're going to do everything, everything that we can to provide safe evacuation for our Afghan allies, partners, and Afghans who, 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 who might be targeted. If the, because of their association with the United States. That was on Friday. Joining us now is ABC's Faith Abube. And to that last soundbite, how many more still need to be evacuated? That is the question we've been asking over and over again from the White House to the Pentagon. And there really isn't a concrete number at this point. But what we heard uh, during the news conference from the president uh, is something that just seems to be a, a disconnect between what he's saying, what the White House is saying, versus what the reality is that our teams are seeing on the ground. Uh, during that speech today, the president tried to put a positive spin on what, what we've all witnessed to be a chaotic situation at the Afghan airport. Uh, he said this is one of the largest, most difficult airlifts in history, and that the, the U.S. is the only country in the world capable of projecting this much power on the far side of the world with this degree of precision. Well, the reality is that there have been issues with this evacuation. Yes, it's a major lift, but critics have said the president could have avoided it with a better plan to get Americans and Afghan allies out of the uh, out of the country before the Taliban seized control. Just this morning, we learned the U.S. had to pause those flights leaving Kabul uh, with evacuees for a few hours, six to seven hours, in order to clear some of these choke points along the way. So uh, they're having some issues with these evacuations. The, those flights were back up and running. Uh, but again, it's just a situation that is being described a different way from the White House versus what's actually on the ground. So where are all these people going? Are they all coming to the U.S.? Uh, not right now. So at this point, according to what we're hearing from uh, the Pentagon, uh, they've, they have designated safe havens. So one of the places that they're sending them is Carter. It's a staging area. They send them over there. And that was the issue with the flights that were, were stopped earlier today. They reached capacity at those places that they're staging uh, these evacuees. So they couldn't bring in more until they cleared the choke point there. And so they have several places. They're negotiating with allies across the world, Germany, for example, to try to hold these people while they process them. To borrow a phrase, we are at war with East Asia. We've always been at war with East Asia. 20 years, two decades. This is the longest conflict in American history, and there seems to be a growing consensus that this war was really never winnable. Is that the view of the White House? I think what we are hearing from the White House is the idea that, you know, there was never going to be a good time to get out of Afghanistan. They thought that the U.S. had already accomplished what it went into Afghanistan to accomplish and that that happened at least a decade ago and that the U.S. needed to get out. And that's what the Biden administration has been operating under. Even during the campaign, we heard President Biden saying that he will withdraw our troops from there. I think in the eyes of the White House, the American troops achieved what they went there to do, which was to uh, tamp down terrorism and uh, basically remove the threat against the U.S., and they believe that that has already been achieved and that whatever 
else that was happening there was more about nation building and that they didn't think the U.S. had any business doing that for many more years, which is why we're seeing this evacuation. What we do know is, by and large, Americans in general, polls before all of this happened uh, in the last week or so, Polls show that Americans, by and large, do support withdrawing our troops from Afghanistan. I think the criticism against the Biden administration has been how uh, this evacuation has happened or how this withdrawal has happened and how uh, the chaos that has surrounded it, basically, in the last few days. That's Faith Abube from Washington, D.C., from ABC News. Thank you so much. Still to come, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee and a Washington Democrat not quite so happy with the Biden White House and the chaos in Afghanistan when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Washington Congressman Adam Smith is the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. He's been overseas as the situation in Afghanistan unfolded, and on Thursday, he spoke at length with Como's Charlie Harger. What do you make of what has transpired in Afghanistan? Well, first of all, the, the you haven't heard from me part, I apologize for. I was in Eastern Europe actually visiting some of our uh, troops, including Washington State National Guard members who are in Ukraine uh, doing uh, training missions uh, with NATO, with Ukraine and other other forces over there. Um, and I didn't I, I felt this subject demanded more than just a tweet. Um, so, look, it is a tragic outcome in Afghanistan. Uh, without question. We, we tried for the better part of 20 years to create a viable alternative to the Taliban. I mean, our initial mission was clear, you know, get rid of Osama bin Laden, um, you know, bring down the Taliban who had allowed him safe haven. Um, and we had to do that, in my view, to prevent another 9-11. I think it's pretty obvious um, and it was successful. Once we had done that, the question arose, well, if we just leave now and the Taliban come rolling back into power, what have we really accomplished? So we wanted to stay and try to create that alternative. Um, sadly, we were not able to do that. Um, there's a lot of different reasons for it, but ultimately the Afghan government, there was too much corruption, uh, too much tribalism, too much incompetence to create that reasonable alternative for the Taliban, and this is the result. Um, and my reaction to it is, it's just tragic. It is a profound loss um, that the Taliban are going to be back in charge of Afghanistan. Is there anything that could have been done differently? Of course. I mean, in any situation, there are things that, that could have been done differently. Um, and you know, we've examined this question a lot on the Armed Services Committee, and we'll continue to examine it. I think the other big question right now is what do we do going forward? Um, you know, we have the U.S. troops that are there now. How do we get as many um, Afghan supporters out of the country as possible? We're going to work on that. I'm working very closely with Chairman Milley and others at the Pentagon to try and get that done. And then going forward, um, what is our plan to contain the terrorist threat coming out of South Asia now that the Taliban are back in charge? I think it is also very important to look at what happened with the withdrawal. I mean, I, I think it's clear that the Biden administration did not prepare as much as they should have for getting civilians out of Afghanistan. They did a great job getting the military out. But the Armed Services Committee, you know, we, we've been questioning the Pentagon about this, you know, for seven months now. Um, what's the plan? And I don't think they planned as well as they should have for the reality of a Taliban takeover and the necessity of getting our, our supporters out. What do we do with these international conflicts when we are in a situation such as Afghanistan and the whole world is looking at the United States for leadership? Does this have an effect on the way the United States military is perceived or is this something our allies have long expected? It absolutely has an effect. I think there are two 
two crucial lessons. There's more than that, but the two that occur to me off the top, you know, we can be present and, and a positive force in the world short of an all-out invest, uh, invasion um, and effort to nation build. We don't have to do that. And I think what Iraq and Afghanistan have taught us is you, you know, nation building at the point of a gun doesn't work and should not be tried. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other things that we can do, that we can't work with partners. As I mentioned, I was I, before we started this, I was in Eastern Europe, you know, working with various partners there who are trying to support democracy um, in places like Romania and Lithuania and Ukraine against Russian aggression. Now, you know, we, we're not going to send the U.S. military to go fight over there, but we've got a small number of U.S. Troop, uh, troops, sometimes less than 100, sometimes just over that, who are training and equipping uh, militaries over there to help make sure they can defend themselves and protect their, their democracies, relatively fledgling democracies. So lesson number one is to, is to really learn the limits of U.S. military power. I think that's that's the you know the most important thing that we can pull out of this, you know, is, is to work with partners towards you know a, a, a more a more peaceful solution. I think that that's the most important thing that we we can learn from this. Um, so that's the biggest thing that, that, that we're focused on. Is should should certainly think about learning from from the lesson there that there there are other ways to meet our goals and objectives, and the military doesn't have to be as central to this. And I hope that that's what Iraq and Afghanistan have helped teach us. Limits of military power. Okay. Twenty years. Was this all worth it? Was there okay. a time we could have pulled out? That actually reminds me of the the, the second point that I that 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 I, that I forgot. And the other thing that I hope our allies will take from this is. The U.S. put 20 years, $2 trillion roughly, and, and, and lost thousands of lives with tens of thousands injured. I hope what this, this tells our allies is the U.S. actually makes very strong commitments to our allies, even at great personal loss. Um, but I don't, I don't think the question, was this worth it, is, is fair. I mean, it, it's a very simple-minded you know, way of looking at this that, that really, I think, undercuts what was going on there. Certainly, it was worth it to make sure that Osama bin Laden, with the support of the Taliban, was not able to attack the American homeland again. I hope everyone recognizes that it was worth it. Then second, when we had that happen, as I mentioned, we didn't want the Taliban to simply roll back into power. So we needed an alternative. We needed a government that could stand so that the Taliban wouldn't take it over. I think it was absolutely worth it to try and stand up that government. And I know, you know, gosh, the hundreds of thousands of people, U.S. troops, but also State Department personnel, people from our Justice Department, NGOs who have worked to try to create a better life for the people of Afghanistan over the last 20 years to prevent a Taliban return. That effort was, was noble. It was an effort to try to give people a better life. And I can't see how anyone can say that that wasn't worth it, even if ultimately it wasn't successful. Um, now, along the way, was there a point at which we should have pulled out sooner? That's something we need to closely examine, and, and maybe so. You know, back in 2008 and 2009, you could certainly make an argument that at that point it was hopeless. Taliban takeover was inevitable. It was time to accept it. But understand that the effort to prevent that was an effort to protect people, an effort to give people a better life. And, and I think we have to respect that. 
as members of the military, we, we talk about uh, veterans and they've been through so much going through this. What's your word for them as they see this unfold? We hear so many cases of PTSD, uh, of, of folks who are really struggling right now. What do you want them to know? Two, two messages. Number one, thank you. I mean, you, you protected this country. Um, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda with the support of the Taliban attacked this country in a way we had never previously been attacked by a terrorist organization. Thank you for protecting us and thank you for making sure that it didn't happen again. And and, and number two, we owe an incredible debt in in terms of making sure that we do everything we can to deal with the healthcare challenges that have come out of that, to continue to support our military. Over the course of those 20 years, we have dramatically increased military pay. We've increased combat pay. We've increased housing allowances. Um, We need to keep doing that. We need to keep taking care of the people who put their lives on the line to protect us. But more than anything, thank you. Thank you for what you did and thank you for what you continue to do. Could you just for a a moment uh, put us in a perspective of September 12, 2001? If you were to tell me we would not have another major terror attack on the United States from radical Islamic terrorists or whatever you want to call it, I I would have been shocked. I I, I would have thought this would be something that would be happening more and more frequently, yet it has not. Uh, There has to be a a lesson there, something that uh, we have achieved. Absolutely. And I think that that's a lesson a lot of people lose because people don't see it. I mean, I was on the Armed Services Committee. I was the chair of the Terrorism Subcommittee for about three years in the middle of all that. A concerted effort was made by all aspects of the United States government to find this network, Al-Qaeda, as it was then, it's had many offshoots since then, and contain it. That took an enormous amount of effort and an enormous amount of sacrifice. You know, I, I read a lot of comments out there. Well, you know, the terrorist threat really isn't that great. Why are we doing all this? The terrorist threat isn't really that great because of a lot of what we're doing, because of our effort to contain it. Now, you know, the efforts at you know nation building in Afghanistan and Iraq, there were certainly efforts that were undertaken under the name of protecting us against terrorism that really weren't and really weren't that well thought out. And we need to look at those you know, very carefully and with, with clear eyes as well. But let's recognize the work that has been done that has protected this country. Um, and and the, certainly the men and women in the military have done that, but a lot of other folks uh, in our government have been part of that as well. And I think we need to recognize that. You're a dad, I'm a dad. And one of the things that really struck me, I don't know if you've seen the photo, but it's inside a C-17 and it's a, a soldier uh, has uh, draped a toddler sleeping on the floor with his jacket and the toddler is sleeping there. When you see images like that, could you just uh, for a moment reflect on the humanity of our armed forces and uh, how they're you know, doing their best in a very difficult situation? Yeah. Look, I mean, that's the thing we need to remember. Um, we, we were there trying to protect people, um, trying to create a better life for them. Now, uh, admittedly, part of that was because the Taliban and, uh, and the people they supported directly threatened us. Uh, but we also saw the tragedy uh, and horrendous treatment that the Taliban rained down upon the people of, Gana, of Afghanistan. And over the course of 20 years, there are a lot of stories just like that one. Stories of, of, of our U.S. military building schools, digging wells, providing health care, uh, trying to take care of people and give them a better life. And like I said earlier, you know, I think what we should all say to that is thank you. 
thank you for that sacrifice and thank you for your humanity for your humanity it makes us all all a better people thanks congressman i appreciate it have a great day you too thanks when we come back has the seattle city council done an about face when it comes to police reform when the como politicast returns in just a moment welcome back to the como politicast i'm jeff podula now greg herschel and manda factor the world watched in horror as the taliban effortlessly took over the afghan capital of kabul abc news crime and terrorism analyst brad garrett is with us again this morning brad i'm curious for your opinion as to whether or not the united states is safer or less safe with the taliban taking over Oh, I think less safe. Uh, And in particular, since we're leaving the country completely. So it will allow them. And again, you have to look at history here. You know, the Taliban protected bin Laden. They they protected Al Qaeda. They fought us for a number of years after we confronted them to release bin Laden and wouldn't do it to why would they sort of change their ways at this point? And and I think without us there, their ability to reconstitute terrorist training camps, I think, is very real. So I think potentially it can make us less safe. Is it reasonable to think the U.S. can negotiate with the Taliban? Of course not. They've been negotiating with them for the last year and a half or two years. President Trump started a negotiation with them. And, you know, they would say one thing and do another. And that's exactly how they have been. Just like, Amanda, the best example is now where they sort of have this slick media approach of being open and we're going to communicate with everybody. And they're just brutalizing people like they always have, destroying religious artifacts, you know, beheading people, uh, maiming people, forcing women to quit their jobs and stay home. I mean, that's who they are. That's not going to change. Uh, And if you remove the layer of us there to potentially kind of keep track and, and be able to react quickly to things they do. I, I think it's a real problem. ABC News crime and terrorism analyst Brad Garrett. And that's Greg Hersholt and Manda Factor. Still to come, has the Seattle City Council done an about face when it comes to police reform? When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the Seattle City Council approved restrictions on police use of things like pepper spray, blast balls, and other less lethal means of crowd control. Now, last year, the City Council tried to act an outright ban on these devices but a federal judge stopped that ordinance in its tracks and now there's this revised version joining me now is como's matt markovich and so what is with this new revised version what's different than the outright ban well an outright ban is just that it was a complete ban on things that you just talked about pepper spray and not so much pepper spray but the wide use of pepper spray Mm -hmm. tear gas uh oc gas oc spray um blast balls 40 millimeter launchers that launched the pepper spray and blast balls. Um, and you and I have both had to dodge those blast yeah, balls in covering right. these riots last year. And it even included the ownership of it, so which meant that the SWAT operations, you know, which are, don't have anything to do with the demonstrations, um, those officers could not use it. You couldn't even own the stuff. Couldn't own, buy, rent, yeah, any so of So immediately the judge you talk about is a very familiar name to us, Judge James Robart, mm-hmm. who's been overseeing the consent decree of police reforms for the last nine years. He put a restraining order saying, nope, you can't do that. That's just way too much. You're not ensuring public safety. And this is right in the middle of all these protests that are happening. So it was a very a timely decision, a very you know spur-of-the-moment vote by the council. So now they've had to regroup. And what happened this week is basically they've backpedaled. They said, 
you know what, we're going to allow some limited uses of this because they finally, and some people say finally smartly, started discussing with the court-appointed monitor. Would the court-appointed monitor accept these revisions? Would the judge accept these revisions? More importantly, would the Department of Justice, which has got this consent decree on the city, would they accept these uh, new revised, less lethal restrictions? Um, And so they proposed this uh, restriction, uh, you know, these uses of how you can use this, not just so much on the SWAT level, which does have some more latitude now that you can use all these devices on a special weapons and tactics team, but during demonstrations, uh, how and when you can use these. Not using them indiscriminately. Right. I think that's the the big regulation here that the city was going for. That's what's really specifically about pepper spray. Because pepper spray, during the demonstrations, you'd see the officers pull out their cans. You know, it looks like a can of WD-40, mm-hmm. and then they're spraying the whole crowd. Well, now you can only do it at targeted individuals and for a specific reason as, reason, as if they were going to car- cause harm to somebody else. That's use of pepper spray. Now, tear gas, which the council really wanted banned, now you can have limited uses of tear gas, uh, as well as the pepper balls launched by these 40-millimeter launchers. They look like almost like a shotgun, and it's non-lethal, so they're shooting these things that explode pepper gas into an area, but you can't just indiscriminately shoot it. So that's that's kind of a that's kind of the gist of that. And so I remember the city council when they were debating this on Monday and then they finally voted on uh, in passing on it. Lisa Herbold was the one who sponsored this legislation. This is what she had to say. While not perfect, my overall goal is to adopt the strongest legislation possible. She wanted to go a lot farther than she does in this measure. I think everybody on the council did, but they had to be they had somebody looking over their shoulder. Judge James Robart not saying it directly, yes and no, and th- certain things, but they knew he had already put a stop to a complete ban, and so you knew that it had to pass the Judge James Robart test. Now, the the uh, court-appointed monitor, Antonio Offaly, which is basically the eyes and ears for James Robart, wouldn't weigh in on whether or not this is acceptable, this new regulations, this new uh, ordinance about the less lethal weapons. Um, he's going to wait for the Justice Department to kick in as well. So we still have a period of decision. But there was one important thing that they added in this legislation I thought that was it's very, very important going forward. Because it's always about discretion. When can you use these tear gas and launch the pepper balls. So they actually have a definition now of a violent public disturbance and when you can use this. And according to this new law, it's when there's any gathering where 12 or more persons use or threaten to use unlawful violence, as would cause a person of reasonable firmness present at the scene to fear for his personal safety. So that's the caveat going forward for pretty much all these demonstrations, these these uses of these non-lethal weapons. And that's what the police have to interpret at that moment. So would these riots that we experienced last year post-George Floyd that you and I both covered, dodging blast balls, as I said, would they have qualified under this new legislation as a violent public disturbance? Well, there's obviously 12 or more people there. Yeah. You know, this is going after a crowd. They do have certain rules going after individuals right now. Like I was talking about pepper spray. If someone mm-hmm. they see is doing a violent offense, they can go after specifically and use these tools on a specific person, but not indiscriminately. Well, now 
a crowd of 12 or more people that show that they may have violent intentions, you can use this stuff. You have to be specific on how you use it to a person, but you can use it like tear gas. Um, in the situations that we experienced over the summer, those are big crowds. It was obviously more than 12 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone throws, usually it starts with someone throw a frozen water bottle, mm-hmm. you know, to our police. Or a rock or some or rock. debris so, or, you know. So that's a could be considered a violent act. I mean, would a reasonable person consider that a violent act? But and, is, but I, I guess my question would be is is that action by one person does then that make it a riot or is it the overall behavior of the crowd? Trying to parse out the language from the city council here, which I think their intent is to restrict police as much as possible in the use of of, of these tools. Well, let's, let's ask the question, the, yeah. the, the, the barometer here. If someone threw a water bottle at police right behind you and you're in a mm-hmm. crowd and you kind of know that kind of agitates that, does it, find, does it meet that definition that you, a person of reasonable firmness present, present at the scene because you're standing there, fear for his personal safety? Someone could interpret that. That is a threat to their personal safety because all of a sudden they're going to launch the tear gas back at the crowd. So, or the officer is going to do that, or it hits an officer. Mm-hmm. Well, surely it hit. It was his personal safety that was in jeopardy right there because he got hit by the water ball. We've heard so much with what the council wants to do, which is very clear. They they want to severely restrict what police can do in these situations. We've heard what the court says they're not going to accept. What about the police department? The actual boots on the ground how are they responding to all of this well, they're the ones caught in the middle that's right but that's all part of this process so it's not like all of a sudden they just pass that and it goes into effect tomorrow here's the progress or here's how it's going to happen the police department has to take the ordinance and incorporate it into policy they have 60 days to do that in 60 days they're going to produce their policies involving crowds and demonstrations and how they'll use these less lethal weapons once they post that policy up then it goes to the Department of Justice for review. It goes to the court-appointed monitor for a review. They can they talk about it. Maybe they'll like something, then maybe they won't. And then they'll make the suggestions or go back to the police department or the city and say, you know, we really don't like this. If they somewhat give it an okay green light, then, then they present it to the new. And in fact, in his latest hearing that he held, he is a very astute person of Seattle politics. He's following the elections. He's following the mayor's race, the city council, and the city attorney's race. He's very much aware of what's at stake in the Sa- Seattle, and he knows the political realities of things. And he'd like to see, and he said, even just in this last hearing, he wants the city council and the mayor's office to all start working together. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, well, but, but that's kind of what he wants, because... Before him is actually this settlement agreement that the city and the Department of Justice agreed to. That's what the consent agree. It's a it's a settlement. Mm-hmm. It's like we both agree that we're going to do these kind of reforms, and the judge is the gatekeeper for those reforms, and that's what that's his job. And he basically said, you know, if you want me off your back, follow those reforms you agreed to nine years ago, and you won't have me around anymore. And the city council, what do they have to say about that? The city council is very much aware now. They're not being this. Some say a rogue agent just saying, forget everybody else and what they think about us. Well, guess what? There's a very important person sitting in a federal courthouse that they have to listen to. Otherwise, they're never going to get out from under this consent decree and they keep keep on passing laws. And if he says, nope, and orders a injunction, there you go. We're, we're, we haven't gone anywhere. So is... That likely to change now that we're going to be seeing at a minimum of two new, or I guess maybe not 
at least one new member of the city council and a new mayor this fall. I think you already see it just in this ordinance because they've backpedaled. They don't have a complete ban, you know, and they're allowing the possession and ownership of some of these weapons and limited use of all things. Tear gas was which they didn't want to have used on crowds at all. So now there's certain parameters where the city, uh, the Seattle Police Department can use tear gas. Uh, so that is a compromise, in, as I look at it, from a year ago with this, with this basically the same city council we have. Now, will two other people coming on the council change that? I don't think so. Uh, just this week also, the city council basically had an opportunity to take $15 million away from the police department that it had saved in salary savings because mm-hmm. also the officers was leaving. Week, yeah. Well, they, they had an opportunity. Well, they didn't steal it from the police department's budget. They basically kept it intact. You, 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 they kind of put controls on how it would be spent. They didn't take it and give it to from from Peter to pay Paul and a whole other department. Like, we're not going to use it at all. So they're already showing signs that, you know, they're giving the SBD a little bit more of what they had been asking for and not this complete defunding that they wanted, you know, that was called upon it literally a year ago. Well, we're far from that now. And the council right now doesn't appear to be following through on any kind of deep cuts, cuts like that at SBD. So why the change? Is it because they were just, as, as I've so often been critical of people in power, in particular the city council, virtue signaling a year ago with the, the, the mood of the moment and then right. just let the clock run out and, and move on to other things? It was the mood of the moment. And uh, how many times would we hear the mayor say you can't legislate by a bumper sticker slogan or something mm-hmm. like that? You know, so that was kind of the sign of the, the defund times. police yeah. slogan in particular. Yeah. So I think reality has set in. You know, we're seeing this tremendous attrition from the police department where it's affecting daily response times. Yeah, we talked about that last week in yeah. excess of 60 minutes in some places. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a real thing. That really ha- that's really happening. You know, because of the talk of defunding police and the, what appears to be a council that's not supportive of the Seattle Police Department. You have officers leaving. You know, the councils, they're essentially their bosses. They write their pay. They approve their paychecks. So uh, <laughs> your bosses aren't supportive of you. Well, do I want to work for them? And so that's what we're seeing right now. Well, the other thing that, that strikes me is that the council is, in effect, running the city. But yet we have a strong mayor form of government, but we don't have a strong mayor. At least relative to the council, not right now. Well, the the council can only, and as you know, uh, they can they can't legislate uh, direction of the city. They they're the, they own the they control the purse. Mm-hmm. You know, they can say, well, great, you can say you could propose this, but if I don't, we don't fund it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So that's how they can control things, and that's how they've been kind of micromanaging the Seattle Police Department. Well, they call it proviso. You can only we're going to give you the money, but this is the only way you can spend it, Mister Police Chief. You know, normally a department head gets a check, and here's how my budget, and here's how I'm going to spend it. Well, the council's saying, ah, you can't do that. You can't spend any dollars over here, and you can't do that. Or, but we want you to spend money over there, and so that's how they're kind of legislating the. The police department, and that's how they're legislating the city. It's interpretation. I'll let you say <laughs> we have a strong mayor or not. You know, I'm uh, not my role. That's what the talk show. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's the form of government we have. But in in effect, and the perception is that Jenny Durkin has deferred a lot to the council. Do you think that's fair? I don't think she has. I think that I I don't think she's had done that. I think she's she's laid or at out, least the council's overruled her on quite a few things. 
Well, they go in different directions at many yeah. times, especially over public safety right now. I mean, for the last year. But I think the mayor has her own initiatives uh, dealing with a lot of different things that don't deal with public safety. But that's always on the top of mind of everybody. And so when we report stuff, what she does and what, what when we report what the council does, I won't say we're biased, but we're focused on public safety aspects. They do a lot of other things. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of things going on at the council and with the mayor. But in the news, we tend to report more things about public safety. So it's certainly um, the top issue in the election this year. Yeah. And homelessness. I mean, yeah. that's clearly one, two right there or the other way around. Homelessness, one public safety, number two. And I think and then the two time. issues are intertwined. Yeah, they definitely are. Um, and criminal justice, too. Uh, so I think both the council and the mayor are very strong in their ways. Brought out the picture. I mean, you had the council and the mayor eventually did approve by not signing it the jumpstart Seattle tax. Mm-hmm. So uh, the tax on large businesses, which is going, which is in effect right now, they're getting, they're collecting money on that to go to the bottom line in the city, the city budget. So, so there's they're 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 effective in their own different way. All right, Camos Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Still to come, Governor Inslee responds to critics of his vaccination requirements when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Governor Inslee responding to critics of his vaccine and masking mandates. But let's start in Mount Vernon, where members of the school board canceled their in-person public meeting this week and switched to Zoom. This after a non-mask-wearing attendee became disruptive. It happened right after an anti-mask rally in Como's Corwin has the details. A crowd of anti-mask protesters confronted Mount Vernon School Superintendent Ismael Vivanco Wednesday outside Madison Elementary School after he announced the in-person board meeting had been adjourned and moved to the online app Zoom. Protesters were not satisfied. Zoom is not a representative government. It's not a way to make your voices heard. The board had required masks to attend the in-person meeting. Vivanco said the board decided to switch meeting formats after an attendee refused to wear a mask and then became disruptive. The board called the police who ejected the person. The incident directly followed a rally outside the meeting calling to unmask Mount Vernon kids, one of several anti-school masking rallies held statewide. Corwin Hake, Como News. And in Yakima, a bastion of anti-state government sentiment, there's this. A teacher who would rather get fired than get vaccinated. Jennifer Walther tells Como the mandate goes against everything she's ever taught her students so far as looking at issues from both sides. Talk about Black Lives Matter or about the COVID or whatever. I go, you go home and you research both sides of it and then you come back and then we'll have our Socratic seminar about this, but not before because we are not going to be sheep and we're not going to follow what somebody is telling us on a news station. The state mandate applies to anyone working in a school environment, including bus drivers, coaches, and volunteers. For Walther, after 35 years teaching, she's hoping it does not come down to the vaccine or giving up her job. If they do, then that's the way it goes. I am not going to take the vaccine, this uh, gene therapy experiment. I refuse. Carlene Johnson, Coma News. Now let's be absolutely clear. Despite that teacher's suggestion, the COVID-19 vaccines are not 
not a form of gene therapy, nor are they an experiment on the public. They are also not DNA manipulators, and they are certainly not a way for the government to monitor and control you. But that hasn't stopped many on the fringes from believing those conspiracy theories. And on Friday, Governor Inslee went on CNN to defend his vaccine mandates. If people make a decision to perhaps lose their life because they don't want cancer treatment, that's up to them. If they make a decision not to treat their heart attack when they're having a heart attack, that's up to them. But when you make a decision to expose our children and our patients to this deadly virus, when you have a tool at our disposal to use, that's an issue for all of us in the community. Bottom line, he says, this isn't just about you and your choice. The fewer people that are vaccinated, the more the virus has an opportunity to mutate and become resistant to the vaccines. We've already seen the rise of the Delta variant, which is far more transmissible and contagious than the previous strains. And as of this week, more than 627,000 Americans have died as a result of COVID-19. But for now, Governor Inslee's vaccine mandate only in includes state government workers and school employees in particular, but that could soon be expanded to include public school students. We typically have had requirements for our students. It usually has been reserved for when you get the final approval from the FDA, which we hope will be relatively soon. And according to the Wall Street Journal, full approval of the Pfizer vaccine beyond just for the current emergency could come as soon as next week. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other programs such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and much more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.